Welcome to Africa's LSP podcast, where we explore the world of translation, interpretation, and localization, as well as connect with the language industry's top players. From language service providers to the businesses and individuals who rely on their services, we'll be delving into the challenges, opportunities, and trends shaping the industry. Join us as we discover the power of language and the impact it has on connecting Africa and the world. Brought to you by Bolingo Consult and hosted by Nat Kintela, Africa's LSP podcast is the go-to podcast for all things language in Africa. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome back to Africa's LSP podcast. I'm your host, Nat Kintela. And Today's episode promises to be an insightful exploration into the dynamic realm of bilingualism and cultural heritage. Our guest today is a British-born Ghanaian who's lived, schooled, and worked all her life in the UK. She's currently a doctoral researcher, and she's committed to the preservation of African languages and heritage through her research work and a passionate advocacy for bilingual learners in the diaspora. And as you're well aware, this, this resonates deeply with the essence of this podcast. Um, Without further ado, let's warmly welcome Denise Amankwa to Africa's LSP podcast. Denise Akwaba, now who to say? Hi, Nat. Midase. Um, Metacha <laughs> Sorry for my accent. That's fine. Literally, if any of my family hear this, they'll laugh so much because I do not speak tree. But as I'm getting older, I'm um, trying my best to force myself to speak. Even if it's a little bit, I'm really trying to force myself to speak. But it sounds so bad when I do. So I'm sorry to any um, tree speakers that are listening for my terrible tree speaking skills, but we can blame my parents for that. <laughs> <laughs> That's totally fine, Denise. So early on, I kind of introduced you a bit to our listeners, but from the horse's own mouth, would you like to share more about who you are and what you do? Okay, thank you for the question. Um, I am Denise Amankwa. Uh, my parents are from the Ashanti region in Ghana. I was born and raised in London. Um, literally spent most of my life in Tottenham, which some people say is like a mini Kumase because there's lots of Ghanaians there. To be honest, most of my friends are from there. Most of my friends are from Tottenham. Most of them are also Ghanaian, so maybe it's true. Um, but I've moved a little bit away from Tottenham now, still in the UK. Um, in terms of my profession, I am a speech and language advisor. Awesome. So you're a speech and language advisor. Uh, first of all, what does that mean? And secondly, is this what you had always wanted to do since you were a child? I mean, growing up, I wanted to be a medical doctor, but today I find myself in the language service industry doing this. Um, so yeah, I'd like to know if this was your dream career as a child. Okay, Nat, can I just say... I hadn't even heard of a speech and language advisor when I was growing up. Like, I had no idea what that was. I always wanted to be a teacher, actually. But I guess I'm not that far off because I work very closely with teachers. And there are different kinds of speech and language advisors in my organization. Most of them are speech and language therapists. So their background is um, working with children that have difficulties, like complex needs of talking or understanding of words. That's not really what I do. I think I'm the only one on the team whose background is mainly to do with education. 
specifically early education, but I was um, brought on, brought to the organization to work on a project. And basically my organization um, produced and supports teachers and families really um, with children that have difficulties talking or might just need a boost to catch up. They also um, have a program for parents where they basically teach parents about how important it is to talk to their children and that kind of stuff. So that was already there before I came, but I was brought to check that um, the programs are inclusive of bilingual people um, and that um, to do um, specific research, so to check how much progress bilingual children make when they take part in the groups that are meant to boost their language development. Um, yeah, so I've just been helping to like edit the resources um, with data collection to train the teachers and how to deliver the programs. Um, I also delivered the groups to the parents myself and I'm training the teachers on how to deliver the groups themselves so when I'm not no longer there. And also just making um, those changes that I was talking about. I actually really love my job. <laughs> um, it's different, but I like that I make an impact specifically um, for the parents. That's the part that I like the most. And I feel like it complements quite nicely all of the research that I do. So um, over the last two years, I was doing my master's in education, um, where I specialized in language and literacy. And I feel like, I feel like my dissertation topic was born out of the experiences I had working with the parents and during data collection. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Now, talking about your master's in education, where you specialized in language and literacy. I understand that you conducted a study that you call English on a Pedestal. Can you tell us briefly what that's about? Yes, I'd love to. I literally love talking about my dissertation projects. <laughs> um, that's all I've been doing the past couple, well, this month in particular, last month, I've just been talking to people about it on different platforms. But um, I will tell you about it. So as I said, in my job as speech and language advisor, I meet lots of parents, especially during the initial um, data connection where we're finding out about what languages they use at home and that kind of thing. So I was really there to oversee things. Like there's a researcher that's meant to come in and do that. But because of how I am, I always get involved. <laughs> so um, I had, well, there were interviews with the parents and something um, I noticed was that all of the, well, not all of, well, yes, actually, all of the African parents weren't speaking their language at home. Or if you ask them what other languages do you speak, they were kind of um, apprehensive to share. And not just Africans, actually. I noticed this in um, and some of the families from Singapore. So basically, all the, all the people that were new arrivals, that's what we call someone that's just come to the country, um, new arrivals from ex-colonies, because I know that Singapore was once, uh, was once colonized. So to me, I was like, huh, something must be applicated. Like something must go on in the education system in these countries that makes them not value their language. Um, so I wanted to find out. So I conducted, well, I reached out to some of the schools I'm close with, got to speak with their parents and also the teachers. So um, I basically did semi-structured interviews with those groups, they were one-on-one. -on -one. Most of them were in person, some of them were online. And um, by the way, these were nurseries where they've all had intense training on bilingualism. So I 
would well one would assume that the teachers would only be saying really like pro-bilingual things that match up with the research and they would also be sharing this evidence with the parents but that was not the case <laughs> well not for african bilingualism that's what i'll say mm, really interesting um i'm going to give you some time to share the findings of your research with us but before that, can you share a bit about your own experiences growing up as a bilingual Ghanaian in the UK and um, how this may have influenced your decision to explore this topic in your, in your research? Sure. So only as I um, did my master's research, that's when I realized and recognized that I am a kind of bilingual. So I'm a receptive bilingual. That means I, and I really do understand every single thing. I understand proverbs. I understand um non-literal sayings, I understand slang and tree, but I cannot speak it. And that's quite common for a lot of my British African friends, like not just Ghanaians, like my Ibo friends, some of my Yoruba friends, not as much. And I feel I have all these theories as to why. One of the reasons I think it's quite hard is because um, most West African languages are tonal languages. So I honestly believe if the child is not practicing the language very early on, they're going to lose the ability to make the tones. And when you can't make the tones, I was saying this as a British Ghanaian, Ghanaians will laugh at you because to them you sound silly. Um, when I'm talking about tones, I mean, I'll give you an example. So, you know, in tree, you can say, Papa, I'm trying my best here. That has two high tones, and that means good. And you can also say, Papa, which is a high tone and a low tone, and I believe that means dad. And then you can also say, Papa, I'm sure I'm so off. So two low tones, and that would mean fan. So Oh, so you mean papa. <laughs> yes. So for tree speakers, that is so natural. Right. But if you are now monotone, like most Brits, <laughs> it's extremely difficult to make the right tones. And that's why parents, if they want their child to be bilingual, they need to make sure their child is not just hearing the language, but act, actually saying it as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they're going to... Well, it's very hard to make the tones when they get older. And if you don't sound native, you're laughed at. And the humiliation is another reason why children don't learn the language. That's my theory. <laughs> Maybe I'll do a study on it one day. Right. Anyway, um, so as I grew up, I didn't really mind that I couldn't speak tree because like, I'd say half of my friends could and half of them couldn't. I understood the jokes, but it, it wasn't like a huge deal to me. Um, it's only as I got older that I was like, if I can't speak it, that means none of my children, none of my descendants will be able to speak it unless I have a partner that decides to really enforce it. But to me, that's very sad. And as I read more about like the slave trade and things like that, mainly I was looking at um, Creole languages and I was just thinking of, wow, our ancestors went through so much to retain their culture, to retain their language. And then I'm the free one, I should say, um, like Ghana isn't currently colonized or anything like that. But because of, well, no, I, I really won't blame me. I'm going to blame my mom here. Because of that generation's choices, which isn't entirely their fault, they were influenced by a lot of factors. Because of that generation's choices, even though we're the free ones, um, now none of my descendants will be able to understand the language. That's very sad to me because there are other communities where that doesn't happen. Like even if they move to another country, children born in the new host country still acquire their heritage language. So yeah, 
I, I think it did motivate me further to explore the topic and to also kind of stop this cycle that keeps happening because I could see it more more and more, especially as I get older. Like, And to me, it's just kind of sad. Um, also, something I noticed as well as I was watching the funeral, um, well, they were Ghanaians in Amsterdam, and the young people, well, the majority of the attendees were very, very old, um, didn't speak Dutch, and the young people did speak Dutch, but they also spoke tree. But when they were reading the tribute um, and the person that passed away's um, biography, they read it in English. So I was like, what on earth is going on here? Like in that situation, I thought if if the if the younger people can't speak tree, then they will speak Dutch. But that they spoke English, and I just found that so bizarre. So to me, that was like, okay, there's clearly something going on here where people think English is a is is a language of high status, basically. Great. I I think that's a perfect entry point into the findings of your research. So kindly go ahead and and share some of your key findings with us. Yep, sure. So um, for all participants, so that's the parents of the children who are attending these nurseries and the educators who are um, attending these nurseries, for all of them, there was a really, really, really strong um, importance of English and other languages like French. Some of them said Mandarin. Some of them said Spanish. But English was like the most important language to them which isn't entirely surprising um, for the practitioners because they have to assess in English. That's what they have to measure in school. Um, and there's pressure from the curriculum to make sure that the children's English develop. Um, and the same for the parents. For most of them, the most important thing to them was for their child to gain proficiency in English because of um, academic reasons. And there was also a very low status attributed to African languages from the parents, which was very sad to me, and also from the educators, which is also sad to me because um, they, the, the, as I said before, the teachers have all had training in bilingualism. They do lots of amazing things in the classroom. Like they have. Um, some, something we'd call a water station, so it's where children can access and pour water for themselves. And all, they have um, the word water translated into different um, languages, no African language there. They have a huge um, dual language book area, so they have books translated into some of the children's languages. None of them are in African languages. They have a welcome sign um, with um, welcome translated into different languages. None of the... Um, welcome signs are in an African language. So to me, again, it was just like there's a clear lack of importance attributed to African languages. And also, um, when I spoke with the earliest professionals, they didn't even consider their children of African descent to be um, what they call EAL, which is a term given to children that have another language at home. They didn't even see it. It's like the, the African children's bilingualism was invisible to them because their parents can speak English. Um, so that's worrying because if the teachers aren't recognizing them as bilingual, then they're not even having conversations like, which language do you speak at home? Do you want to continue speaking this language at home? And the, those are the important um, kind of 
um, questions that early as professionals should be having with parents early on as well, so that they're sharing the right messages, they're um, challenging misconceptions, they're demystifying the idea of bilingualism because there are lots of myths surrounding it. And um, a last uh, final finding, I would say, is that um, the African parents, their schooling experiences heavily shaped their views on their native language. And honestly, the conversations I had with them was very upsetting. Some of them have had quite traumatic experiences where they were beaten for speaking their language, or some of them were like praised. So they were um, encouraged to kind of snitch on other friends or peers that were caught speaking the language. Um, for one of my um, trips to Ghana, I actually saw a school that had a sign that said, speak English always. So there were kind of covert ways of English being prioritized for the Africans, um, African parents. And there were more overt ways, like the signs I'm talking about. Um, so that was really sad. And one of the parents um, even said that, that he was given more opportunities from his family um, to further his education because he was the child that spoke the most English. So that was sad to me. <laughs> Those are really disturbing findings, I must say. Um, I'm particularly concerned that the value of African languages was found to be low among all participants. Not some, but all. I mean, we've always known the situation to be bad, but I didn't expect it to be this terrible. Anyways, we'll come back to your research on bilingualism in the UK in a bit. But for now, let's come home to Ghana. Um, you'd agree with me that this issue of English or colonial languages placed on a pedestal is not peculiar to, to the UK. We see the same thing happening in Ghana. And it's actually cuts across Anglophone and Francophone Africa. I, I know you've had some close interactions with some schools in Ghana due to a few projects you're undertaking. Can you share your own observations of this trend among basic schools in Ghana? Yes, again, so there are some schools in Ghana that I help. They're in really, really deprived areas. And um, when I go, I can't even go to the areas without someone with me because most people don't speak English there, which is totally fine because it's not England. But um, it, it was odd to me that all of the children are taught in English. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that there's a policy where children are um, taught in their uh, home language up to a certain age. <laughs> so the thing is, at all levels in the Ghanaian educational system, Ghanaian languages are only taught as subjects and not necessarily used as a medium of instruction. Yeah. Um, to me, that's very sad. To be honest, even when I go to the nursery classrooms, like the nursery songs, and I would hear the teachers speaking English, and I do get the bigger picture. The bigger picture is for the children to not be disadvantaged. They're already coming from a low socioeconomic background. So I guess the teachers think they're helping them by um, teaching them English as early as possible. And you know more about this than me, but I believe if you want a job in Ghana that's well-paid, maybe like an office job or something like that, English has some importance. We can't um, ignore that. But... All of the evidence and all of the research shows that children do better when they're taught in their mother tongue. So to me, it's really upsetting. Um, there was this idea that tree in that area, because it was the Shanti region, that it's vernacular. So it, it's given this like lower hierarchy. It's something you should just speak at home. But 
these ideas, like you said, are colonial. Of course, the colonizers came and decided your language is here, quite low, my language is here. So to improve your life, you should speak my language. And our ancestors did. They did learn the language. And I think that's a great skill to do, to learn someone else's language. But it doesn't mean you have to abandon your own. It doesn't mean you have to look down on your own. It doesn't mean you should discourage your future generations from um, learning your language because that's part of our identity, right? And what will happen is you'll have lots of Denise Mankos where there are lots of, there's a whole generation of Ghanaians that don't speak any Ghanaian language. That's my fear. And that's actually what's slowly happening. And even in Ghana, there are people that don't speak any Ghanaian language and they have two Ghanaian parents that speak Ghanaian language. I don't understand. And um, can I also say at university, um, I'm obviously studying linguistics right now, but there are other um, PhD students that aren't looking at linguistics and they have this thing of speaking in very complex sentences like I, I don't want to speak badly of the presidents, but similar to the president, they speak in really complex sentences and that's not academic. In fact, I mean, well, it's academic, but it's better if you're sharing research and you're talking in an accessible way. But there's, again, there's this idea that I must speak like this, um, which would be like academic English, which is better than everyday English because this is seen, this type of English is seen as intelligent. Where did that idea come from? Is it's not it's not true. <laughs> well, what's more impactful is if you're able to communicate with people, and they understand you. Um, yeah, and something I always tell the parents is they should ensure that they are uh, not just parents in Ghana, but all parents that I work I come across with because of my work. You should speak the language that you're most confident in, because the most important um, thing is for your child to have a good foundation in language. They need a good linguistic model. I cannot give, even me, who's heard all this tree, I cannot give my child a good linguistic model in tree because it's not my first, it's not the one I'm most confident in. You should only speak the language you're most confident in to your child because you are modeling grammar. You're modeling, this is a good sentence, this is a bad sentence. You're modeling, this is a pronoun for a boy, this is a pronoun for a girl. But if you are forcing yourself to speak a language that you're not that confident in, as humans, you'll probably make mistakes, but we shouldn't be modeling mistakes to children. That's my point. <laughs> That's the end of my TED Talk. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Now, back to your study. So, while going through your research, another finding that particularly jumped out to me, perhaps um, due to my past experience as a school teacher, was the role of educators in all this. Uh, permit me to read that paragraph. You wrote, Although educators have been recognized as key influencers in parental language attitudes, the early years professionals had little influence on this group of parents' language ideologies. This is because the bilingualism of Africans from Anglophone countries for the early years professionals was not recognized as it is for other language communities. Moreover, the findings revealed that the early years professionals have a gap in their knowledge pertaining to children of African descent and their language practices. Now, back to you, Denise. Can you briefly throw more light on this? Um, yeah, so, well, a key finding in literature is that educators have a huge importance and they really influence 
parents' decisions about which language they should speak at home. And I do believe this is true, but because the African children, as I said before, are not even recognized as EAL, in this case, the teachers actually don't have an influence on what the parents are doing at home because they don't even see them as bilingual in the first place to have those conversations, to influence them in any, in any way. Um, but I, I, now that I think about it, the fact that they aren't recognizing them as bilingual anyway, their lack of, um, I'll say, focus on them just means that all, that, all that's left to influence the parents' decision is their schooling um, experiences. And their schooling experiences have taught them that an African language is not um, valuable, but a European language is valuable. And to me, it's just kind of sad. Interesting. So, in essence, what you're saying is that the actions or inactions of, of the educators directly or indirectly impacts the parents' decisions anyway. Um, yep, sure. Right. Talking about impact, though, as an African and a doctoral researcher focusing on language behaviours, your work holds the potential to significantly impact the preservation of African languages and culture. Um, in what ways can research like yours be a catalyst for this cause? I mean, have you considered scaling this research beyond the UK? And um, what do you hope to achieve with this study, both in the short and long term? Oh, I would hope to cause some kind of change. That, that is literally my dream. I'd be so happy to. But I think there needs to be more black and white evidence to show um, policymakers, to show educationists, to show parents that when you do X, <laughs> it doesn't produce Y. So actually, I went to a talk um, the other day and um, there was a study between, I think they were in Sweden um, and um, some Fante speakers. So they were looking at a school in um, Ghana in the Cape Coast. They were much older than the children I'm talking about, maybe in year four, so like eight, I think. So at that time, obviously, they've already come used to hearing English at school. And the children were assessed in terms of their comprehension, so how much they actually understand, and as well as their reading fluency. Um, so they were able to read the story fine. But when it came to actually comprehending the story, they scored significantly more when they were asked about the story and they read the story in Fante. So it's so simple and clear. And if we have lots and lots and lots and lots of lots of research like that, then hopefully we will look at ourselves and say, okay, it's very silly to do the opposite of this. If children are doing better, if it's easier for them, if they're scoring um, more, and I'm going to plug another um, resource I heard um, at a talk. It was called Aya Prep. So um, a man has created an app um, where um, it was um, to do with passing your maths qualification to go on to do further study. Well, you can all check it out. It's called Aya Prep. And it teaches students in certain Ghanaian languages. Um, you can check on the app. I believe he said it's free. And he has not had one student fail because it's taught in the language. It's, it, to me, it's very clear. And I want it to be obvious and common knowledge, basically. When there are more studies like this, and to show um, policymakers, to show educationists, to show parents, that's my aim. <laughs> Well, Denise, I must say that for someone in the diaspora, um, your interest in promoting heritage language use while 
still supporting Children's Linguistic Foundation in English is commendable. Um, now to wrap up, I'd like to give you the opportunity to engage parents, educators, and policymakers, both in Africa and abroad, who are listening to us today. Um, what do you think they can do to bridge the gap between native languages and colonial languages in the development of children? Oh, great. Well, for parents, I know um, when parents move to a new country, it doesn't even just have to be England, Amsterdam, Holland, Germany, although I have another theory, <laughs> which I have all these theories that I need to actually study to check, but I think children born in non-English-speaking countries um, to, parent, to Ghanaian parents, their proficiency in their Ghanaian language is much better, and I think it's because their parents are less likely to be fluent in, I don't know, Italian or Dutch or um, Swedish or whatever. Um, so what I will say to the parents is children, of course, will naturally not want to speak the language at first. They want to fit in and they want to do what's easier for them. But you should really, really consider what language is do I want my child to be speaking when they're 18? If you want your child to only be speaking English, then continue <laughs> And um, I always describe it as a battle. So there's a battle of languages. Your child is hearing English all the time at nursery, which is probably where they spend most of their time because when they come home, they'll probably eat, do homework, and eventually sleep. So they hear English all the time there. They hear English all the time from the TV. They hear English all the time from their friends. Um, and just in society, in wider society, that's all they see printed on signs and books. So imagine that input at like 80% and then you at home, you have 20%. You should be boosting that 20% as much as possible as a parent, I think, if you want your child to be bilingual. Um, for educators, I would say your role is so important. The things you say to children really shape their ideas about their cultural identity. Um, and if you want your children to do best, None of the research says you should speak to them in a language that isn't their um, native language. None of the research. A lot of the excuse I hear from um, teachers in Ghana, I'll say. I'll talk about teachers in Ghana, then I'll talk about teachers here. Teachers in Ghana is that they just want the child to do well academically. Well, if you do, then you should abide by what the research says. And the research says mother tongue-based education is the best. And then educators in the UK, please understand that you play a huge role in your um, British African children's self-identity. You can be the reason why a whole generation is unable to speak their language now. And I know that's a huge um, kind of thing to bear on your shoulders. You might think it's just the parents' responsibility, but it's also your responsibility too to be sharing the evidence that you've learned about bilingualism with parents and also to be encouraging your um, black African children in your classrooms to talk about their languages, to be proud of their languages. Um, I know it's harder to find resources in African languages, but please try your best because it, it, it does make a huge difference, especially the ones early on. The message that you send early on has a lasting impact. Um, for policymakers, I would say that they need to consider, and I know that their point is to make uh, all four Ghanaians anyway, I assume it's to be a part of the global world, but they should consider what Ghana is going to look like in 50 years, in 100 years. Um, well, my theory is if it keeps going the way it's going, we're just going to speak Ghanaian English, or oh, pidgin as well, maybe. And to me, that's very sad. Why should the non-colonized people be the one to create 
that system. That's what I would say. Wow, it's been great talking to you, Denise. Um, thanks for generously sharing insights from your study with us. We really appreciate your time here. And as usual, we will share your LinkedIn profile with our listeners so they can follow up on you and your work. Um, thank you once again for your time and contribution, Denise. Oh, thanks so much, Nat. It's been great to talk with you. I love talking about this stuff and I hope other people find it interesting as well. And if any listeners do want to talk about my research, please do. As I said, I'm now doing my PhD and I'm planning to extend my master's um, research. So I'm looking for schools in Ghana to observe. Um, and I'm also looking at schools in the UK to observe as well and interview some parents and practitioners too. So um, hopefully this isn't the last that you hear of me. Hopefully I'm doing big things soon. But yeah, thank you again for your time. And if anyone has any suggestions for the project that I hope to do, then please get in touch on LinkedIn. It's just my name, Denise Amakwa. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to Africa's LSP podcast. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and learned something new. For feedback or inquiries, reach out to us at podcast at bolingoconsult.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite platforms. Until next time, stay curious and keep growing.